Welcome to Breaking Green Ceilings, the podcast that amplifies the diverse voices of those who are committed to protecting and sustainably managing our natural environment. I'm your host, Sapna Mulki. Let's get started. Here is another fun conversation. As always, we talk about a lot. And one of the reasons these episodes are not a typical length is because people are so much more than brief highlights of their life experiences. And I want to take time to get to know the person, their dreams, their aspirations, fears and challenges so that we can humanize them and learn from them. So with Katie, we talk about her passion for snakes and salamanders. We totally geeked out on this for a bit. Reptiles are super cool, y'all. We also talk about her experiences of working as an educator in the national park system, in zoos and metro parks in Cleveland, Ohio. Her enthusiastic educator personality definitely comes through, which was awesome. A notable part of the conversation is how her self-identity as a gay woman at times impacted her professional experiences, and sometimes it was with being a woman. So she reveals a rather shocking professional experience towards the end of the conversation, so try and get to it if you can. This interview was in person, so it gets a little more animated than my other conversations. Have fun. How about we start with you telling us about how you developed your passion for nature? That's a good question. I got thrown outside in the summer a lot. Like my parents were a big believer in the like, you shouldn't be indoors during the summer, I guess. That's good. And I remember we had to stay over at my grandma's house for like an entire year. We were trying to figure out where to live for a bit there. And we were there in the summer. She had a whole creek in her backyard and stuff. Like it was like... A, was this in Ohio? Yes. Like it was expansive. So yeah, we did the whole like build teepees with sticks against the trees and... I don't know. It's just when you get immersed in it, you start to wonder about it. And then you just want to know more and more. And then I also loved dearly Steve Irwin, but I think I'll Maybe reserve rest in that. Peace. Yeah, I'll <laughs> reserve that rant for later. Okay. <laughs> I think I know what it might be yeah. when you might rant about that. Yes, yes. <laughs> so tell us about how you, know, you went from a, a passion for nature to wanting to pursue it as a career. Tell us a little bit about sort of how that evolved and what was your vision for being a part of protecting the natural environment? I would say I went ass backwards into it. So it wasn't (laughs) intentional at all. Yeah, Um, I think I just liked animals. And I think it's this like quality that I've seen when I got to teach kids later in life where there's just like always that kid that just like wants to go poke the thing, I guess, like the animal or whatever's typically freaking the other kids out. Yeah, just honestly, just go poke it. Like it is the exact behavior I've seen in other kids. And so that kind of just was a lot of what I felt like was the unifying string of how myself and others ended up doing animal science and stuff in particular. It's something that like really starts when you're a kid for a lot of people, like you love animals. But there's not a ton of ways to go about doing that professionally or in a way that's like a job. So I just started doing, I think, just general environmental work and then like animals factored into jobs that I took for money or just research experience. And then that's kind of how it ended up. I didn't go for wildlife biology, which was an option at my school. It took a lot 
you had to be there for five or six years to get that degree was not really by design. It was just that there were less and less staff. They kind of were moving to a like medical side of things, I should say. Oh, you, oh, yeah, by the way. Shout out to Ohio University. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, I just did regular biology. Actually, I technically made my degree up. It's a Bachelor of Specialized Studies. Fun fact. Wow. Okay. Made it Specialized up. Specialized Studies. They didn't have an environmental <laughs> degree, which was, is really odd for the liberal college of Ohio University, I would say. Because I actually started there in paleontology. That's what I thought I was going to do. I was in the, wow. the Whitmer lab there where they do super cool stuff, like amazing. They, they do 3D scanning. I did not realize that's what it was at the time. So small world, right? And like yeah. weird how life works. They put dinosaur skulls into CT scanners. And the CT scanner is technically a 3D scanner. You just don't yeah. really think of it that way typically. So they would look at where the holes were or the like voids of bone inside the skull were and like try to kind of work backwards of what tissues filled those areas when it was alive. So cool stuff. But Ohio University, while I was there, they switched to semesters. It was a big statewide mandate, like enforcement of a law, like no more quarter systems has to be semesters. So then all the requirements and credits for degrees changed and some degrees left or, you know, were cut and some were made. And so there was environmental science then, but by then I was a senior and I was not going to just change course. So I actually made up my degree. So I just ran into like-minded people at Ohio University and we all just end up there because you just like to poke things and you just want to know more. And you're willing to get hurt, to be honest, because that's a lot of how animals communicate is with their bodies. Yeah. And you have to learn their language. They're not going to learn your language, right? The motto is always be smarter than the animal. So a lot of them communicate with their bodies. That's how you learn how to communicate with them. And sometimes you get bit or pushed over or pooped on. Who knows? Or kicked. Or kicked. Yeah. 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 So (laughs) there's a little bit of roughness to it, I think, as well. So I guess... I'm a little bit fascinated by your fascination to poke animals. Poke. We'll just poke. use that very lightly. Yeah, yeah. So was there like a particular animal that you were fascinated with? And was there just like something about the exploration process of kind of trying to understand an animal or a particular species? That's a good question. I don't think I tried to specialize on anything until yeah. I was in college and just was thrown into research. So I ended up doing snakes, which is bizarre and possibly a miracle unto itself because my family is 100% petrified of snakes. Like my grandmother, my mother will not be in the same room as the snake. Huh. Sometimes they'll just look at pictures of places like tropical places and they'll just kind of mutter and they'll be like, but there's so many snakes there. <laughs> like, okay, settle down, settle down. So how I was not raised with a at least healthy fear of snakes, I do not know. I'm going to credit my mom on that one. Maybe she just really knew how to like quarantine her own phobias or something, but it was never a problem for me. Yeah. So it was just what I got handed to me pretty much initially. And I, I, they're a misunderstood animal, clearly. Yes, so yes, it was sure. kind of an emotionally charged animal to be the first animal that you work with, I suppose, in like a cultural sense. I didn't care at all. I think they're really beautiful animals, the scales, the way they move. And then just when you find them in the wild, I think people would be surprised what snakes get up to in the wild or where you find them. Yeah. Really interesting. But yeah, it was kind of emotionally charged because you, you get branded as the snake lady pretty early on because people hear snake and it really sticks out to them, right? So it would be like the same as being the spider lady or 
The cat lady. The cat lady. Yeah, (laughs) something like that. In fact, I ended up working at OSU later on with research where the lady there, like, that's what people call her is the snake lady, the Lake Erie snake lady. That's how she's referenced in the local newspapers and everything. So I think they're beautiful animals. I'm not terribly interested in them as pets. Like, I have a lot of friends that are. Yeah. It just starts to be a little bit different. I'm a person with strong personal boundaries, you could say. So I have a real boundary between going to see something in the wild and something living with me. Those are two different things. Very different. Um, So I just never really wanted them as pets or anything. I really liked appreciating them in the wild because they are hard to find. Mm, Hard to find. You got to work for that. They're actually shy and kind of reclusive animals. Yes. That's really cool. I do like snakes. But when I see them, I get really terrified. But that's because it's a cultural thing, right? But there was once I had a close encounter with a rattlesnake Mm -hmm. in Austin, Texas when I lived there. And it was just like the scariest thing I'd experienced with a snake in the wild because we were just like walking on a path in a green belt and my dog was ahead of me. She was off leash. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So we were walking and then she was probably like five feet in front of me. And all of a sudden I heard like the shaking, rattling sound. And I was like, oh my gosh, what is it? And I saw its tail stick out and it was warning us. And I was like totally yelling at my dog. I'm like, let's go the other way, other way. She's like, what are you freaking out about? And I was like, rattlesnake. (laughs) But it was just on the edge of the path. And I'm so glad that it warned because I wouldn't have known it all. But snakes will only attack if they feel like they're being threatened. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I was like, that's a really nice alarm system you have there. And they really are good at bluffing, for sure. Mm Because, I mean, I don't know if there's there's science on this of, like, really what's, like, hard-grained into your brain as a, a phobia, like your lizard brain or whatever. But I will say, no matter how much I love snakes, when we would keep them in research, like, conditions... You have these huge, it looks like a cabinet almost, but with individual acrylic doors. But the back and the sides are all black because you want to like limit stimulus, right? And lower the stress of the animals you're keeping. So there's just like a part of my lizard brain that no matter how often I was working with them or how cool I was with them, when you have to reach your hand into a dark hole to an angry (laughs) snake in the back that you know is going to at least strike, maybe not land a bite, but at least do the really that very exaggerated action compared to most I think animals biting there's just something you're like oh get out of the little jump there yeah Yeah. so I would say maybe there is just a little something in your lizard brain that is there's something about the way snakes strike that's like intimidating so you worked a little bit with snakes what next then did you salamanders 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 they're very cute and they are near and dear to my heart they probably are my favorite animal i guess even more so than snakes i love snakes i feel like i have to advocate for snakes so i'm talking about snakes more it's also just a lot more just like meaning to ascribe to them culturally good or bad so that's like kind of fun part of it to be honest but salamanders not a whole lot of attention paid historically to salamanders yeah you know the can come in various versions of ugly. And yeah, yeah, kind of the opposite of cute. Yeah. So slimy and cold and yeah. kind of just stare at you in an early move or anything. Yeah, yeah, opposite of traditionally cute characteristics for sure. But I love those things to death. So while I was doing snake research, like out in Kentucky, 
That summer in Kentucky was a particularly brutally hot summer. It was regularly in the triple digits. We probably shouldn't have been doing research on certain days that we were asked to. And we were like hiking like 10 miles a day to find those snakes. And all the riverbreds were very dry. I remember that. There was there wasn't moving water anywhere except for the lakes themselves, Energy Lake, at like the land between the lakes, but all dry riverbeds. So once or twice we found at least like a puddle more or less and it was you knew that salamanders must be there because there's not a whole lot of water to have although a lot of them will just go underground but we flipped rocks and it was like a treasure trove they are just the most gorgeous little like gems in the forest of this like shiny vivid color they don't mind standing out a lot of them are toxic so it you flip those rocks and it was like literally like opening a treasure chest of these like gorgeous animals who all had to get together in these tiny ponds during a drought, but gorgeous. I loved it. And I was like in love with them immediately. I picked one up right away and it was a slimy salamander, which is a very literally named (laughs) salamander where their defense mechanism is to make this really thick mucus that sticks to you. And I was like, what kind is this? Oh, and like a minute later, I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah, that's no, but Again, it's just like that mutual respect of like the very first one I picked up was made me regret it. So you kind of just watch them and respect them. And I know they're not super cute and cuddly, but I kind of don't want that out of wild animals. So I just really like salamanders. They're also ancient and very cool, very cool. So the next thing I got to do after the snakes was a salamander is actually salamanders that are up at the top of Lake Erie. They clone themselves. They're a form of ambistoma. And I know they're a cross between like Jefferson salamanders and blue spotted salamanders. And they are all female and they clone themselves. So that is like... they clone themselves? They they defy the process of natural selection entirely by cloning themselves with some DNA that is shockingly old. Okay. So they've clearly been doing it a long time with success. And for anyone listening, you don't want to clone yourself typically because uh, there's a whole, so say a virus comes along that you don't deal with well, that means your whole species will not deal with it well unilaterally and just die from it. Something like that or whatever, you know, gets introduced into the environment. No natural selection takes place when you're all like carbon copies. Right. So it's just bizarre and we just don't really know. And you said they're all female. They're all female. How do they reproduce? They will seek males out between Jefferson's and Blue Spotted's, but it's really only really only to get them in the mood. There's no biological input from those males. Okay. It just sort of triggers them. And it isn't even self-fertilization because that is not the same as cloning. But somehow they become fertile with eggs that are really just exact That's genetic crazy. replicas of themselves. Yeah. Now, the thing is new... Ambistoma, gosh, that's only the family name. I can't remember the next one of the species name, but new ones are made though all the time because whenever Jefferson and a blue spot, well, right. not whenever, but it seems like sometimes at least when Jefferson and a blue spotted cross, they uh-huh. have enough genetic similarity to have a viable offspring that becomes this crazy cloning female. That's crazy. Yeah. I was trying to remember the name of the salamander that I like. Or that I find cute. It's the Mexican salamander. Oh, yeah. Is it the axolotl? Or, yes. Yeah. A lot of people know They're that adorable. They are weird little cave salamanders, that's for sure. Yeah. Okay, so I was going to ask you, tell us an interesting fact about salamanders, but I yeah. think you just shared one, which is... I also think those salamanders did a lot for me in my interpretive career. Yeah. Because I would... Here, I'll give you the spiel. Ready? Yeah. Close your eyes. 
And when you think of salamanders, what are like three words that come to mind right away? Salmon, man, I don't know, leader. Really? Oh, God. <laughs> Not like cold, slimy. I don't know. Oh, I thought you were saying about, my... about oh, the salamander. Oh, oh, okay. yeah. Any salamander. I guess, yeah. Like yeah. tiny, big eyes, slimy. Depending on which one I'm looking at, it's like makes my skin crawl. Because <laughs> there's some which are like big and ugly. Yeah. Where I'm like, yeah. oh my gosh. So the thing is, for most of human history, if I had asked somebody from like 200 years ago on back what they thought of salamanders, they would probably say magic and fire and rebirth, like just crazy. So they were Uh always associated with the element of fire. People thought that they were baby dragons. And we're not just talking about like European history here. Like it was pretty unanimous, seemingly across the world. They were like, well, these things are born of flame yeah, and they're magic and they were used in like alchemy or whatever, you know, like all that stuff. People thought they were, or they would poison your whole well, or they had the ability to like kill a whole village and things like that. So it's just wild that they were thought that way for the longest time, that they were like magic creatures straight up, like baby dragons almost. I don't know where they saw that. It was because across any human culture, we all make fire, correct? So this is a defining feature of humankind. And typically a lot of salamanders will live in rotting wood either underground rotting wood or in like vernal pools or something like that. And if you're a human being and it's time to make camp for the night and you're moving through whatever forest, jungle area you have, you're going to go for the dead wood unless it's like truly soggy. You want to get the wood that's on the ground because that's easy. That's low-hanging fruit. So you collect up that wood, put it in a pile. You're going to make a fire. You start the fire and you notice all of these salamanders fleeing for their lives, running away from the fire oozing out and so people just kind of assumed they are born in the flames <laughs> and i mean they are We're a little so bit dumb. toxic <laughs> a little bit dumb but it's also just like fascinating yeah. to me like that salamanders today are so like lowly to most people yeah. but for most of human history almost anywhere they've been magic straight yeah. magic it's kind of romantic but it also just says how much i don't know if it's just my perception, but how humanity's kind of like jaded and because we've kind of extracted ourselves from nature and, you know, science has an explanation for everything, yep. supposedly. Sometimes um, so, stories were just to remember things. Yeah. And we don't really need that now, right? Yeah. You're like, just Google it. Exactly. Oh, that's so sad. Yeah. So one thing that really fascinated me about you is your experience of having worked in the parks system as well. And we didn't go too much into detail about it when we did talk in the past, but I was wondering if you could do that now and kind of tell us where exactly you worked and what you were involved in, in terms of like your activities. Mm -hmm. Okay. My major jobs have been started at OSU at Stone Lab. That wasn't really a park per se, but OSU owns an island in the Bay of Putin Bay called Gibraltar Island, romantically enough. Yeah. And this is a university that owns an island. It owns an yeah. island, I know. It's like you UT know. Austin that actually owns like oil fields. Oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah. And I bet, you know, if anybody in this town and you were like, did you know OSU owns an island? I bet they wouldn't be surprised. It's Ohio State it's, University. It's a, yeah, it's, it's a, a massive yeah, institution. Yeah. So they own an island. It's six and a half acres. It's admittedly a pretty small island, but 
we were the maintenance crew there and we were we were teaching we were helping with research and we were also like the island keepers you know they they hired us to do it all because it's a small enough island that's still like pretty visible to put in bay and all that Uh, you're not like remote i suppose like as if a fire broke out or something people would notice so to speak but so that was sort of park maintenance there is a castle on that island yeah i know which is like wild. a modern you know, day I, I castle t- um, or? Uh, not a modern day castle it's okay. like an 18th century castle it's not like those napa valley california castles no no it's <laughs> cook's castle on there which is crazy i just met somebody the other day that i knew that people go to lighthouses they like almost collect like visits to lighthouses it's yeah. like their bucket list of lighthouses people are really into that those are- didn't know that there were things for castles so this person i was like yeah there's a castle on there she was like oh yeah cook's castle she like knew more about it than i was i was like what is it anyway but there is a castle on there so we would take care of the island the island was the most blissfully goose poop free area i've ever lived in we had a dog on the island his name is newton i assume he still works there ongoing employment but he would chase the geese away it was brilliant loved it but then after osu i did well cleveland metro parks i guess would be the next big player in the game i think cleveland metro parks is the big player of the north so to speak northern ohio and i do believe that most of our natural cultural historical resources are typically broken into three c's we call them in ohio cincinnati columbus and cleveland and Cleveland Metro Parks is a big player. So I worked at the zoo for Cleveland Metro Parks. They employ lots of naturalists every year in interpretive programming. They have a ton of parks, a wide variety of what goes on in those parks. They do have a wildlife rehab as well center. It's in Penitentiary Glen. That's a name I'll never forget because it just seems so odd. Yes, yeah. Penitentiary Glen. And then after that, it was the National Park Service. And then Summit Metro Parks. Okay. And so what drew you to working in the park system and sort of did you notice any two questions here? Okay. I guess is what did you like about working in the park system? And then did you notice any difference between like state management versus like federal because you were in a national park and state park system as well? What drew me in is they were hiring (laughs) at OSU. I just fell into that. Yeah. I wanted to be able to apply what I knew about animals and wildlife. But I knew that was unlikely. So I knew it was kind of part of that job description, but isn't necessarily what you're doing or even what you ever talk about, depending on where you're going, what the program is. So the other motivation for me was that climate change is something that concerns me a lot. And I'm definitely a person that I feel better and happier when I'm doing rather than worrying, so to speak. I think that's like a big thing with not even just our generation, but the time to be alive right now yeah. is that there's a lot of guilt and a lot of not Depression. knowing what to do, really. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That concerned me. So that was like, even though I knew animals weren't going to be maybe the center, so for the zoo, at least it was advancing that and I could explore like yeah. what's being done in that area or how I can serve and where I fit in, essentially. So then the differences in management... It's all about the money, unfortunately. Well, fortunately, I don't know. Unsurprisingly, but unfortunately. Yeah. So Cleveland Metro Parks and OSU clearly didn't need to worry too much about their funding. I shouldn't say clearly. OSU clearly didn't need to worry about it. Cleveland Metro Parks does a good job of sustaining themselves in various income streams. I think they are the most with it organization I've worked for. 
in agility and kind of moving empirically, like taking data and reacting to that data and like kind of making decisions like in that sense, although it is a large organization. So it does tend to be much slower and much more red tape than you would assume for what is technically a Metro Park system. It's a little bit misleading that it's called Cleveland Metro Parks because it's not confined to Cleveland. It's not even confined to Cuyahoga County. Metro Parks in name mostly, but then there's no real word for the span that Cleveland Metro Parks has. Yeah, there's jurisdiction in a sense. Yes. Most, a lot of government is very much confined by jurisdiction. I'm not exactly sure how Cleveland Metro Parks went about not doing that. Um, I'm going to assume it was just moves of desperation of people being like, oh my gosh. Cleveland and the area around it has only been hitting hard times in the last hundred years, you'd say. I think they just were very strategic about local organizations not being able to take care of whatever site or something that they had. And it's gone well for them. So yeah, so they were really strategic and they have lots of different revenue income. That doesn't mean that dips in the economy or something like 2007 didn't affect them, but they did pretty good. And then the National Park Service was... Tell us what you really think. Yeah. (laughs) No, if you want to. It's a safe space. (laughs) It's a safe space. It was less bureaucratic than Cleveland Metro Parks, oddly, in a way. But it's an honor to work for the National Park Service. Oh, yeah. Pretty much. It is, no matter where you are. But it is just like fascinating new world, for sure. It's definitely its own case example in almost any respect that you could look at the organization is different. It's different how they do things and how they run. So I was there at the Environmental Education Center where we would have groups of schools come in sometimes for overnights. And I would also work on the train that's in Cuyahoga Valley National Park as well. There's a train. I know. Odd. Most people are surprised there's a national park in Ohio. Most people are even more surprised when a train runs through the middle of it. So it's odd. Most of our visitors end up there on accident. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like on accident. It's a tourist train, I miss you. Yes, yeah. So it's like an old school. I mean, it's not burning coal anymore or anything, but they, they yeah. keep the outer facade kind of old school and it goes right through uh, the park, which is actually awesome. It's really a tool of accessibility that you don't necessarily have at all parks. So you don't have to be able to hike and you can see like a lot. What would the dynamics between you and your supervisor my supervisor had never supervised before. So your job description is extremely literal and very much what you live in, die by in a federal position. So you can't do something outside of it. And so my, my supervisor had never been a supervisor before. That's typically just not in her GS grade, so to speak. But I believe she got, she moved up a GS level. And when I say GS, that's like, um, category of job that you have for the federal government. So that applies to the military and any other federal position. So she was promoted. So that was new for her, but she was actually a good leader, a little hard to read in a terrifying way at times, but she was a good leader. And yeah, yeah, I liked her. And so one of the things that I've kind of heard is that working in the National Park Service, like that's one of the most coveted jobs It doesn't pay much, but it's really fulfilling. And you're depending on where you're posted, you could have an amazing like cabin or like in a beautiful park, I don't know, around. So, you know, people tend to stay there within those positions for a long time. So then what's the opportunity for, I guess I'd say new blood 
to come in. So there was a lot of interesting change around the time that I was hired. You are correct. I mean, I cried at the end of my phone interview for that. Like I got so like choked myself up where you're like, I it would be the greatest honor to work for the National Park Service. And I know something interesting that I was taught in like a safety meeting while I worked there was that the National Park Service's fatality rate is really high, like almost on par with a military branch. No way. Very high. And it's because people who work there care so much. So you're working in sometimes dangerous conditions, but people care so much about that mission. They take their, they love their job so much that they'll often go too far, so to speak, or especially compared to somebody who's like, well, whatever, doing their nine to five. So not necessarily sacrifice themselves, but go above and beyond when it wasn't safe to do, because that's just the work culture at MPS that you go above and beyond. You love this job. You're passionate about it. So that was just like one facet that like, yeah, that very literally, there's definitely that culture there. It's good culture. Don't get me wrong until you're, until you're killed off. But <laughs> yeah. So the thing about it is, is that it's very punishing. So it's similar to other institutions, I guess, that's kind of in that family of museums or parks and stuff that once you get to that big name, so many people are there to replace you. So many people want that dream job that the standard can be brought lower for the employees because you have that over your head, right? And the employer knows that as well. So for example, seasonal jobs are pretty much what makes MPS go round. No offense, all the love to the permanent employees, but seasonal employment's the name of the game for how the National Park Service functions and how things get done at parks, which is if folks didn't know, means that you can work for six months. You could either work full-time for six months, you could work part-time for almost 12 months, but it's that same number of hours, which I believe is like 1,300, something or other. And then you have to leave until it's the next year. So that sucks a bit. Most of those jobs are that. So the permanent positions are even more vibrant. So Legislation was passed shortly before I was hired to address this by Congress. Believe it or not, Congress passed something in the last few years. And it's called the Land Force Flexibility Act. And it means it was supposed to be thrown a bone to people in the National Park Service because when you have to keep moving like that every six months, possibly across country, when it's that unstable, and when you are going to some well, most of the parks, to be honest, that are very isolated, not a school system, no Walmart, you know, like very hard to keep relationships, even harder to start a family while doing that kind of thing. That's a barrier to entry of people of color, people who are just coming from poorer backgrounds. You need to self-fund yourself to move around like that. And then if you have obligations to family and, and friends like that, then you can't just like pick up and move across the country for six months. So there was barrier of entry. So Congress threw us a bone by saying that you could be eligible for internal hires within the federal park, the, the system, which is a big deal, instead of having to apply alongside the public specifically because that, yeah, that cuts down on it. And then you're competing with veterans because they get like extra points, that kind of thing. So if you worked two years, not consecutively, I think it was like the limit was you couldn't have longer than two years of not working. So cumulatively, two years of seasonal work, you came eligible to apply for internal hires. Awesome. Cool, cool, cool. Unfortunately, the federal government is a hydra with many heads, and they often bite themselves in fury. So there was a different 
federal office that reacted to that legislation, essentially. It's called OPM, a notorious federal branch. What does that stand for? Office of Personal Management. And they are the people who deal with your paychecks and a lot of sort of like audits and regulations therein of like how people can work. So they reacted to this legislation by saying, okay, they said that, that's cool, that's a law now. But we are going to make the stipulation that you cannot work one season back to back. So one season to the next season in the same region. And what that means is that the country is in six regions. So you can either be in like the Hawaiian sort of area, the Alaskan area, Rockies, Central, Appalachia, and then like Puerto Rico. So sort of like islands, key islands down there. Those are the six regions. I couldn't work at Cuyahoga Valley and then go to Rockies and only be like a couple hour drive away. So they kind of reacted by making it worse. So Congress did the good thing and and lowered the barrier to entry. And then OPM kind of walked it back. Maybe not all the way. I guess that's subjective. But it's hard to move to a whole new region. And that's further distance, further away from from where you come from, your support network, more money to get there, sustain yourself. So, So was that like a barrier or like how did that impact you? It wasn't a barrier for me, fortunately, because we have this national park right here in Ohio. Yeah. I was and you already wanted living to stay in Cleveland. And you, yeah. So that's like a 45-minute drive for me. I didn't even have to change living situations. I didn't yeah. need park housing. Very convenient for me. My first apartment was $400 a month. Like, can you imagine? I'm not even that old, guys. I'm not even 30. <laughs> yeah. And there was a day when rent was not like over half my paycheck. Yeah. I remember it nostalgically. So... I'm just curious to know, like, my idea of the national park system is, and I'm not trying to throw shade or anything like that. I'm just trying to, like, understand from your perspective, what was your experiences? Like, in every institution, there's got to be, like, some sort of, like, power dynamics in there. Well, I'm assuming, based on my own experience. When I think of the park system, I just think of like a bunch of happy people who are just like these eco-nerds who hold hands and, you know, protect trees and nature and ecosystems and all that great stuff. But people are people. So there's got to be like some sort of at times conflict. And if so, how is that managed? Especially like, I don't know if you can give me a perspective from like a woman's perspective. Yeah, I think parks... And then the crown jewel, the national parks, enjoy a unique cultural phenomenon where you would think there's eco-nerds, but the parks also were made by Teddy Roosevelt, who was, I guess you could say, very much pro-Second Amendment, right? Which means something different to us culturally now than it did then. But hunting and fishing has always been a part of the public sport. And then national parks, and then plenty of other parks, local or parks, Also care for veteran sites and battlefields and historical things. So you kind of get this like almost culturally conservative background, right? Of maybe, depends obviously, but veterans background, historical societies, and then just sort of that base of hunting and fishing alongside the eco-nurse. So it always kind of enjoys, I wouldn't say that balances it out. I would say there's definitely striations depending on the park you're at. But in terms of public support and just sort of like respect and that kind of payoff for being like, ah, yes, you're a park ranger, you work for MPS, like that, that respect that you're given that, for example, maybe a teacher doesn't right now at this point in time is really nice. And no one wants to tip that boat, either conservative or liberal. But you're right. It depends on the park, where they are. So the more remote, 
definitely the more of a boys club it becomes. I didn't have that problem at Kuva, but Kuva, C-U-V-A's, they always abbreviate every park to the first two letters of its name. Or if it's just one word, it's the first four. So Cuyahoga Valley. Yes, which is actually a really fun game to play once you know that with all the national parks. So like one of my favorite is that Death Valley is then Diva. (laughs) (laughs) And I always say I want to go over to Diva. Grand Canyon was Gurkha. Gurkha, what's Yellowstone? Yellowstone, you know what? I only know one person that works there and I haven't had it. I don't know. Yeah, Yeisto, Yeisto. I don't know. Anyway, Kuva was nice for sure. But... I had a colleague, Sam, that I'm still very good friends with. We just became friends. And she worked at Gurkha before the Grand Canyon. And that was, I think, maybe a year or two after the rather large scandal of out of Grand Canyon came where there was rangers that mainly operate on the bottom of the canyon, which is the harder work, right? So that's like, it's like being at the top of the mountain, but you're at the bottom of the canyon. So you're the ones that are doing tours down there, looking after Ghost Ranch and kind of like enforcing... Pink rattlesnakes are a big thing there and all that. And there was a big, big scandal of they were really gross down there. Like, so any female employee that tried to work down there was like really hazed and like the things that they had to deal with and like sexual harassment, if not assault, really disgusting for sure. And they were, that was a big stain on them. So by the time Sam got there, it was two, one or two years later and they had hired a different director who obviously was hired specifically to cut that shit out. Yeah, she had interesting perspectives. So that's like one example of it can be really different depending on the park. So I imagine parks that are along the Appalachian Trail and stuff or urban parks like mine, not so much of a conflict or hierarchy there, but then there's different areas. I would also say that that balance that's struck by parks in general is upset by then the top down. So the top down does have a big influence on the park service. So who was hired by the president to look after this department? Who is the president? Where we at with that, you know, that yeah. does have an impact for sure, tangible impact Indeed, on all parks. Because you know, you can you can take away the conservation status of a national park, as we've seen in yes. the last couple of or the past four years, actually. Sort of dishonorably discharged. That's what it feels like. Yeah. The park was just unmade. It's crazy how that works. It's just kind of a shock to me. I always thought of national parks as like permanent. Only because that's kind of like the culture that I came from. Mm-hmm. And then also because, you know, as an environmentalist, I would, I would like that. So that was like one question I wanted to ask you is, and it kind of struck me when I was in the Grand Canyon National Park a few years back. And there was an educational board, I guess, that was provided information about how the last Native American was basically kicked out of the park. And that was kind of like brought me to the realization of, oh yeah, like we have basically occupied lands of the native people here. And I was really conflicted with that. And so, you know, like you working in the park service, like what did that feel like? What did it translate to you as like knowing that this land is land that we've kind of snatched away from Native American communities and kind of just... bad, bro. But specifically, it just almost feels like when an animal isn't there anymore, when a plant that you never see anymore, it's like, it's a loss. It's a loss. And you feel that loss and it's never going to go back. And it especially sucked at Kuva. It was unfortunate because there's tribes in the area around us, but most of them are not from this area, so to speak. They were relocated here. And there aren't 
any in Ohio with some exception that's happening over in Wapakoneta, but that's a different story. And it's unknown what happened to the people that lived here. It's unknown whether they actually permanently lived here at all, or if it was more of a just come up here in the summer and leave in the winter type thing in Ohio proper. I think there was a lot of native folks around Lake Erie, but Ohio kind of the rest of it. Obviously there were mound builders. There's awesome things in Ohio, but like, where did they go and what happened to them? And there's like different theories for sure, but we don't know. And so anytime we were teaching about Native history at MPS, I hated deeply in my soul every time we had to refer to the people who lived here as the Whittlesea. And it's because that's the last name of the guy, like presumably white guy that discovered that people were here that found artifacts and named them the Whittlesea. His last name. It's kind of insulting. It is. It's like truly like the most symbolic. Not only is it so bad, it's like dying twice. It's like not only are they not here anymore, but what they call themselves even is a mystery to the ages to us now. And so it just hurt like in a very visceral way every time, even when you were trying to be educational and be like, this was the Whittlesea that like you're reminded that that's the stakes here. They're dead twice in a way. That's, I mean, my heart just sank when you said that. Yeah. And I've been trying to like educate myself a little bit more about the Native American tribes in this region, in the Midwest, and also just like in Ohio. I mean, that's, that's really all I can say because I'm still like in initial educational yeah. stages. But yeah. the fact that we're part of that movement that kind of like, well, not we are part of it, but it's just so sad. I don't know how yes. to articulate kind of the annihilation of, people and their histories, it just kind of like breaks my heart. Yeah. And there's no softer word for that. Annihilation is what it was. I'm just like really conflicted with that whole history and just like the continuous bashing of Native Americans from the history, the erasure of their history. Yeah. And just the continuous making and breaking of promises from us, from the federal government, no less. Truly insulting. I was reading this article in the New York Times that now that they're they're building the wall is the the contractors have had to go through spiritual sites and protected lands of like Native American tribes and they've cut down 200-year-old cacti and just again annihilated these sacred lands that Native American communities or tribes have been protecting and stewarding better than western civilization and it and just, like if it you, just never ends. In the period of time that they have been here and had relationships with those places and animals. It's millennia. <laughs> like, I think it's so easy to be flippant about it now. If you don't think about it that much or whatever, to be like, oh yeah, they say they're from here, but like, look around. It's easy to not have that check on time because admittedly our brains are bad with dealing with a sense of time or large spans of time, but millennia. So we'll kind of like start to, we have like five minutes here. So I wanted to talk to you a little bit more about the transition that you've made now to Legacy 3D. It's different from working in conservation biology and the park service. So tell us very briefly about what that is and kind of like what your vision for this new business that you started is. Yeah. So the struggle was definitely real working in my career field. A lot of people make it work. So maybe it's a personal flaw or something, but I was Losing patience. Choice. (laughs) Choice. Yes. Losing patience. And also, there are just those like 
I guess I'm someone who thinks a lot about ethics. Like I'm not a religious person at all. I identify as an atheist. So ethics and philosophy are the language that I use for spirituality in a way of like talking about these larger picture things. And so to gloss over climate change or what happened to native people from this area, or I'm not pointing fingers. It's just these organizations, even though I made it, I made it all the way to the National Park Service. I didn't feel like I was really making that change that you want to see in the world. And you can call me a stubborn person, but I just didn't really want to give it up either. So I bumped into the technology of 3D scanning on accident, more or less. Most places I've worked for, with like maybe one exception, don't even have IT departments. Like that's not really something that features into park departments or small little research institutions or historical societies. And so honest to God, when I started at OSU, that's like where the snowball started, where I I mentioned that I could do Photoshop. And then it was like all IT problems got referred to me from there out. And then after that, it was like at some of Metro Parks, I mentioned that I built my gaming PC. And it's honestly just because I wanted to play modded Skyrim. That's the only (laughs) reason why. It's not that hard to build. I honestly, it's like Legos these days. It's not hard, but in some people's heads, I was like, okay, you're the IT department now. So I didn't mind that as much. And I guess I kind of self-realized it a bit when I was like, you know, I think we could bring 3D printing into this department and save some money. And there's an awesome facility up in Cleveland called the ThinkBox. It's Case Western has it. It's like a four-story makerspace, more or less, of their devising. It's free to the public. And so I used the tech that they had there and I got my feet wet. And I liked the printing, don't get me wrong, but the scanning is where I was like stupefied. I was like, this has the most potential for preservation and conservation I've ever seen. I don't understand how this isn't being applied in a wider sense. And I started just going bananas with it and scanning very strange things. So I scanned bones and rocks and artifacts and live animals and dead animals and like, what can you do with this and where are the limits? And the sky is the limit. So that job at some of Metro Parks actually wasn't seasonal. It was part-time permanent, but yeah, for just a combination of reasons I won't get into, I walked away and I moved back with my family in Columbus. My girlfriend's in Columbus. So it just kind of made sense to return to Columbus after being gone for 10 years, like the wandering sun or whatever. But I came back and I just decided I would make a full-time go of that 3D scanning to conservation. So there were some, there's like maybe four or five organizations across the globe that do it. So I wasn't the first to think of it. So that was somewhat reassuring, but it clearly needs to be brought forth in a more systematic way. And so that's what I'm trying to do. I think it's a really great initiative because it's an opportunity for us to archive what may not be, especially with climate change. And we're rather than needing physical space to store these historical artifacts, we would have it on a cloud somewhere. And we'd have it to such detail in information that I think that we could continue learning from these artifacts Mm -hmm. even after they're gone, which they will go. Museums burn down often. All the time. Species go extinct all the time. So I think it's a brilliant idea. I like it as well because it does address to me a bit of that inequity that I feel in the world because I'm not here to sell the tech. It's not like I invented this and I want you to buy this scanner. If anything, I'm evangelizing the technology and what I'm doing in my business. And I don't want to box myself out here, but anybody can scan on their phone right now. I mean, it's going to be a bit of a pain in the butt. Email me, I'll walk you through it. It's going to be a pain in the butt, but you can do it for free. And obviously, just like any technology, it gets better. 
So 50 years from now, I sincerely hope that if you have something in your basement or in your community or your area that you think is worth something to mankind and the human story, that you scan it on your phone and you put it on the internet and there's no more gatekeeping in terms of conservation and what is worth conserving. Exactly. It's that gatekeeping element of it where you're kind of denied the the history. Yeah. So you're breaking through those inequities. Speaking of that inequities, I was wondering if you could kind of speak to your experiences as, correct me if I'm wrong, sorry, who identifies as somebody from the LGBTQ plus community and you've dedicated a good amount of your time or like you have just dedicated your life towards like conservation. Have you experienced inequities? And if so, kind of what were those inequities? Oh, Lord, they are a lot of different things. So first off, my very first job, actually, I guess my very second job that I wouldn't really count as a real job, it was like a make money job right after graduating college, was working in a Wild Birds Unlimited because it was like kind of animal related, right? You're like, yeah, it's real tell at the end of the day, but at least you talk about animals, watch birds. And I got fired from that job for being gay. So that was really great right out the gate. Like we graduated from college. It was kind of a like out of work event happened where we were showing folks some chimney swifts in Westerville. Uh You had to gather outside of work to do that. And so I think unfortunately, just from some friends and family friends, probably something slipped to the managers. Although honestly... I'm going to say this about myself right now, dear listeners. I look gay as hell. Like, there's, (laughs) I don't make any, you know, qualms about that. Like, if plenty of straight people have been like, oh, I thought you were gay. And it's like, yes, congratulations. Your gaydar (laughs) is at least slightly (laughs) calibrated. Yeah. So it wasn't like I was trying to hide it or anything, but it must have come out in some kind of direct way. So the following week after that event, it was just like I was called into the office constantly and scrutinized for like, things that it was like putting my hands in my pockets or like licking my lips, like things that just didn't make sense at all. I think they were trying to have some kind of prerequisite for the reason they were firing me. And then it was just, yeah, don't come back. Wow. But it is legal to fire someone based on their sexuality in Ohio. Yeah. Oh, and the definitely the thing was that the owners of that store had a daughter, I guess kind of my age, maybe a little younger, but she had a kid really early. And that so that kid was like between 9 and 12, probably, while I was working there. And so they would get out, bring them from school around 4, and the, the store closed at 5. So this kid, like, took a liking to me, a shine to me, so we would help close the front of the store together, yeah. like, sweep and all that. I don't know. I guess she thought I was a cool kid or something. You're a cool kid. But, <laughs> thank you. But after that event, and then the following week, that kid never came back. Like, they shooed her away from me. Which in the conservative brain, of course, once you're gay, that also means you're a pedophile. So that was really (laughs) kind of the contextual clues I had of like, oh, I know what's happening here. I shouldn't lighten that or anything, but it was at least it wasn't a career job. But yeah, I'm sure like at that moment, it was beyond offensive and really hurtful. And but yeah, I think maybe time heals. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Helps you heal. And we're not laughing because it, it was a funny situation. Yes. It wasn't. It was just, it's just ridiculous, yeah. really. You don't laugh, you'll cry, right? But I don't know, in other jobs, it hasn't. I think when wildlife, pure wildlife conservation, it's tough to be a woman, not necessarily a gay woman. 
just because, yeah, it can be a bit machismo, you know, that physicality that comes into it can lead to machismo. And especially in the herps community. And when I say herps, it's herpetology and reptiles and amphibians, so the snakes and the salamanders. So since that's such a stigmatized animal, a lot of times people are like, yeah, I keep snakes. It's like a toughness symbol, you know? Yeah, yeah. And so then sometimes that bleeds into the career itself uh, where it's toxic masculinity ruins the party again. So I would say if anything, that came into play. And also like functionality and field research, like when you're walking around for 10 miles in a day, like when you have your period or something, like that does impact it and they don't care. They're like, that's your problem. Deal with it in the woods kind of thing. Yeah, so there's just blind spots and a lot of like, mm, a little bit of sexism went from that. But in the parks and rec, not so much, not even so much with being LGBT, but I think I've been very fortunate living in like very urban areas as well. So that's the benefit. I think it probably comes into play elsewhere. You know what's weird though? The biggest LGBT population in MPS is in Alaska. <laughs> no way. Alaska, fun fact. Yeah, would Why? not have thought. I couldn't tell you. I don't know. I guess it's the furthest from any kind of <laughs> like judgment, right? It's just you and nature. I don't know. In your I purest form. Yeah, I guess of that like overlap of being gay and loving nature, but I guess that takes you to Alaska. Yeah. Interesting. All right, well, That will take us then to our lightning round. Yes. (laughs) So first question here is, what have you read, heard, or watched that has influenced you the most? Oh, like overall? It could be overall or lately. Lately. Lately, I read an article that was actually done by a guy who wrote a book about millennials. I think I've never read the book, but he apparently gets a lot of cold calls about like from corporations wanting to understand generational shifts or whatever. And he never takes them, but Shell had reached out to him as in Dutch Shell oil company had Ah. reached out and was like, we'll pay for you to come over and all that. And He's very much involved in environmental like protesting and like rights and stuff. So he decided to do it because they didn't make him sign a non-disclosure agreement or anything. So he was like, I'm just going to go undercover. I'm going to tell you what I see there. And it was fascinating and it was really interesting, but ultimately ending in kind of the sentiment that like, so like Shell wants to rebrand as a renewable energy. Yeah. Company. Yeah. And Shell will become a renewable energy company whenever it has to, right? Shell is doing things for Shell. That's what Shell is there for. And so he basically was making this conclusion that was really interesting of, we like, you really want to tear those organizations down because they're the people that started the problem, right? This problem of climate change. But then when you're looking to the picture in the future, how do you get to that future? How do you get to the good stuff? Like, how do you take those resources, turn it around? And maybe in some cases, it's easier to let Shell care about shell first and foremost in other cases it's not and so just like that delicate balance I, I don't know if i'm articulating it well of punishment blame needs to be assigned and frequently isn't don't get me wrong but then the leverage into that future that we need if we are going to survive how do you change how we get there where you stop punishing the poor and the most vulnerable they stop getting the raw end of the deal but how do you ultimately still change not like start from scratch. Anyway, that was really interesting. It was an article. I'll look for it and we'll include it in the notes. What's a personal habit that has helped you significantly in your work? Yes, I do journal. I think that is important. So when there's major transitions in my life, I recognize that I have a terrible memory. It's 
especially when it comes to numbers or dates or time periods. And so I start journaling just because it helps me in the future. It doesn't necessarily help me now. Sometimes it does, don't get me wrong. But it helps me in the future when it's so easy to put on your rosy glasses and be like, oh, I remember it this way. And then I read my own damn journal in my <laughs> own words and be like, oh, that wasn't that I almost way. Died. <laughs> right. Like almost like writing my own story down because I will get my own story wrong yeah. with enough time. Yeah. I need to be better at that. I've had so many translations that I need to just stop and mm-hmm. write it down. And yeah, journaling is a good idea. What is the best piece of advice you've received? Make it till you make it. Yeah. My uncle used to say, overcome and adapt, young Marine, because he was in the Marines. So I think that's a, maybe a flashier way of saying that. But yeah, fake it till you make it. Because well, yeah, I mean, we all had insecure moments in our teen years, if not beyond that. I know what it's like to be a late bloomer, don't get me wrong. And it just comes down to like pretending that you're that confident person or pretending that you're that expert. And then it just is a self-fulfilling prophecy. So and the good and the bad is that that can happen with negative and positive things. And you have to kind of remember to keep it good and positive and have goals rather than fears and insecurities and focus on that. We all do, but do not self-realize with the negative stuff. Self-realize with the positive stuff. So fake it till you make it. Fake that you're good and that you have good habits and that you know whatever. And then you will learn those things. Who is your personal hero? <laughs> Hands down, Steve Irwin. Steve Irwin was my favorite. So I had like kind of a weird thing is that I would walk to school. Like I sound like an, what, like your grandma probably like, I walked to school. But I did. I walked to school, like first grade to high school, walked to and from school. And I would get home from school on hot days and go right to my basement. It was the most air conditioned area of the house. And that was where our TV was. And so I would flip on animal channel and it was always the crocodile hunter what happened to be on when I would get home and so I already kind of like nature and I already kind of liked animals but like Steve Irwin as a role model was so amazing it it felt similar to how it is to come out later like as gay in that I would watch Steve and he would pick up these brutal animals sometimes right so like a whole like a hairy tarantula or whatever he's gonna hold it and any animal no matter what even if it was actively biting him or it just kicked him or something he just gushed love about it yeah he was like she's so beautiful look at her and like it felt like coming out because it was like oh it's okay to say that or feel that way so i was like I also felt that way about the animal. Like, yes, Steve, I agree. She is beautiful. And the cool, weird things she does that like kills things or hurts you, just part of like what the animal it is. And you still appreciate it about that animal. So it was like, okay to be as enthusiastic about animals as I was because of Steve Irwin. And I miss Steve Irwin every day. Yeah, I mean, I think it's amazing how we still see him like, on TV or like his words still resonate. Yes. His presence, I feel, still resonates in our mainstream community as well. And his kids are also doing amazing work. Yes. Yeah, I follow them. His wife as well. So I love that that legacy is continuing in terms of appreciation for nature. It's definitely on my bucket list to go to the Irwin Zoo in Australia someday. And I've already told my girlfriend, like, we do that just so you know, I'm going to like openly weep sometimes. <laughs> I'm just going to be like overwhelmed in a good way. And that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. Yes. You are human too. You're allowed to 
you know, gush with, it's with joy. Good cries are yeah. the best yeah. cries. All right. So we've reached the end of our conversation here, unfortunately. So how can we follow you in your journey? So in my scanning journey, you can go to my website. That's Legacy3D. TheLegacy-3D.com. And I publish sort of like a photographer does. So as I scan things, if they're not legally bound to clients or whatever, then I publish them. So if you want to follow, see what I'm scanning, see what I'm up to, if there's themes to it, that would be the portal to do it in. Is there anything else you would like to add before we end our conversation? Yeah. I would say looking... Toward the future, when I worked for zoos, I learned a lot about zoos. Zoos started as menageries for rich people in Rome, turned into roadshows, circuses, and now they're zoos. They have a terrible history, right? And I could say that of maybe the park service, maybe a lot of different park services. And kind of similar to that Shell article I was talking about, those are currently our best advocates. So we don't want to forget those dark histories, but we want to grow and move forward. And they do their best, I think, to be sensitive and to change. And so we just have to look forward to that future and listen to voices that have been talked over historically and do better. But just all is not do lost. Better. Do better. All is not lost, but do better. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's okay to be hopeful and it's okay to be optimistic. But don't forget the history as well. But don't forget that. Awesome. Well, thank you again. This has been a pleasure. Thank you. We'll continue it offline. <laughs> hey, all. Thanks for listening to Breaking Green Ceilings. If you'd like to hear more episodes with change-making environmentalists, head on over to watersavvysolutions.com backslash podcast. You can find me online on Instagram and Twitter. And as always, if you love the show, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and like on iTunes. You can also sign up for my newsletter to find out when new episodes are available. And please do share the podcast with your family, friends, colleagues, and whoever you think will be inspired by the wisdom of our change makers. I always welcome feedback, so please do feel free to reach out to me. My contact information is also on watersavvysolutions.com. Until next time, keep breaking through those green ceilings.